0: Just go to indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. Today we are talking about war and how to cover a war and how to consume coverage of a war and how the current war, that's Russia's invasion of Ukraine, May or may not be different than previous conflicts we've covered, and what it means to have all of this unfolding on TV and Twitter and TikTok all at once. Oh, and Telegram. Turns out I need to learn a lot more about Telegram than I thought. Uh, To do all that, we're talking to three different experts. Clarissa Ward is CNN's chief international correspondent, she's reporting on the ground from Kyiv, at least for now. Puck's Julia Yaffe is based in Washington. She has deep ties in Russia and really good geopolitical insight. Jane Litvinenko is a former BuzzFeed journalist who's now at Harvard Shorenstein Center. She specializes in uncovering and explaining disinformation online. She's also a native of Kiev. We're going to get right into this, but two quick notes before we do. Uh, One on timing. We talked to Clarissa Ward on Tuesday afternoon, which is why in that interview she's talking about Joe Biden's upcoming State of the Union address and a bombing that just happened that day. Uh, we talked with both Julia and Jane on Wednesday, so their conversation is slightly more current. And because we're talking about war and violence on this podcast, we do touch on a few graphic descriptions of what war and violence does to human beings. Okay, now let's hear from Clarissa Ward. Clarissa Ward, thank you for joining us. You are CNN's chief international correspondent. We are very appreciative you could take a few minutes on what is a very busy day uh, so thanks for joining us. You have done reporting from hotspots and war zones for 15 years plus. Uh, you've been in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, now you're near Kiev. There it's under attack from Russia, as we all know. What is different about this assignment for you, and, and what is familiar with, with other hotspots and war zones you've been in the past?
2: Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, it's good to chat. It's always really hard to compare conflicts, because every conflict is different, and Every conflict is heartbreaking and tragic in a unique way. I'd say that, you know, what's different about this conflict, obviously, is that we haven't seen a land war on this scale since World War II. And when you're down in some of these subway, like metro stations, which are acting as de facto shelters. You are reminded of World War II, right, and images that you know you saw of the blitz and people hunkering down, sitting in subway cars, um, waiting for the bombardment to stop. The other thing that's tricky about covering this, although this applies to other conflicts too, is just that Ukraine is a vast country. These cities are all spread out and there are multiple attacks going on at the same time. And so as a journalist, you're trying to get your head around all of these stories as they're breaking and you're seeing this huge amount of social media video coming in and you're trying to parse through it, geolocate it. And I mean, I'm I'm very lucky because I'm not at all experienced or knowledgeable in how to do that. But we have a really great team at CNN who are just constantly going through this video and feeding back editorial, feeding back information about where it took place, which then enables you to better contextualize it. And then on top of that, you have the satellite imagery that we're getting from Maxar. And so you got all these pieces in the puzzle that you're 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 frantically trying to put together all the time to get a sense of what the bigger picture is. And so that's that's definitely challenging.
1: How much of your time is spent trying to do that triangulation and and contextualizing versus saying, I'm going to go out, I'm going to show you what life is like right now on the streets, in the subways, wherever you are, and that's the most value I can provide. I can provide real-time imagery and, and commentary about what's happening that, that you can see versus stuff you can't see.
2: Right. No, that's a really good question. And for me personally, I am all about the experiential side of it. My primary motivator, um, the reason I love this job, the reason I continue to do this job is because I want to see the experience of people who are living through this and how their lives are being torn up and turned upside down. And so that is what I focus on primarily. But then, of course, you can't tell the story in a kind of sensible and coherent way if you're not also understanding how it fits into the bigger puzzle. And especially at CNN, I might do a story about people taking shelter in a metro station and talking about their experiences. But then I'll also be expected to talk slightly bigger picture as well and be able to do analysis. I'm really blessed because I work for a huge news organization. And so there is no way one or two or even three journalists can do this work alone. It's like a massive task. This is dozens and dozens of people who are working around the clock, each giving a piece of the puzzle, which then I try to look at and get a better idea of of, of what it means. Because the other component to all this, right, is that telling the story is obviously the primary task. But then you also have the kind of in order to tell the story, I need to have food, I need to have shelter, I need to know that we're in a reasonably secure location, I need to have an exit plan, I need all these other logistical challenges that you're parsing through as well. So yeah, we have amazing teams, and and, and we rely on them heavily, but it it's a lot.
1: It seems a little surreal, really doesn't do it justice. But you seem to have a pretty good internet connection. You are seem to be in what looks like a, a nice enough hotel room. I mean, it looks like you could be reporting from Cleveland or, or Hong Kong or, or anywhere. Does it feel normal to you sort of when you're in a, a room like this? And then does it feel radically different when you step outside? Or is the whole thing sort of surreal because the, the military, because the Russians really aren't in Kiev yet?
2: Right. I tell you what the most surreal thing is, honestly, is that I think very few of us really believed this was going to happen, especially those of us who have lived in Russia, who speak some Russian, who have Russian friends, who talk to Russians every day. There really was a lot of skepticism about whether this was a feint or a bluff. And I think very few people outside, obviously, of the U.S., intelligence community in the White House, who have been warning very loudly about this for some time, I think very few of us on the ground, and certainly very few Ukrainians actually believed it was going to happen. So yes, it is very surreal to be sitting in a nice hotel, talking to you. And in the background, there's like explosions that are the result of Russian bombardment on the capital of Ukraine. I mean, that's just a lot to process. Three months ago, we wouldn't have even been having this conversation. I would have laughed if you had even brought this idea up that Russia could potentially invade Ukraine. And so there is a sense that like, okay, we've crossed the Rubicon now, the largest ground war in Europe since World War II, it, has Putin lost his grip on his reality or is he acting rationally according to his own objectives and, and, and interests? And yeah, it's like, it, it's hard to process it all because it's such a lot of change in such a short period of time. And I think all of us understand that this is gonna have a fundamental impact on the world order. And yet it's too early to know what that will look like.
1: So it's early and it seems all of a sudden, even though it's been coming for months, but the velocity is increasing. You mentioned an exit plan. How are you going to decide, and I assume at some point it's also your your managers and bosses as well, deciding when it's time for you to leave? That's got to be an incredibly tricky thing to figure out. You want to stay as long as you can, but at some point you have your own safety. You can't do your job if you're not of alive. Of course,
2: of course. A good chunk of our time is taken up by weighing the risks calculating different plans. What's a fallback position? How much food do we have? What do we do if the power goes out? Do we have a generator? Could any of our equipment be dangerous for us to use in some kind of a you know situation? And um, it's a constant conversation. It's a constant assessment. We have risk consultants who we've worked with for a long time with us, security consultants who are with us on the ground, and they offer a totally different perspective. And um, so, again, it's like you you and your team are huddling a lot and trying to work out what the best course of action is. And, and, and you have to every day be ready for the possibility that you might might have to leave. And you also have to be prepared every day if you make the decision not to leave to know that you might not be able to leave.
1: But presumably, I, do you imagine that at some point you are going to have to leave, That whether it's a day or five days or a yeah.
2: week or a month, that yeah, you're going to have to go? Yeah, um, a I really hope not. I really, really hope not. And the reason I hope not is not because I want to be here until the bitter end, but because I'm really hoping that cooler heads will prevail and that some level of sanity will be restored. And it's an unusual thing. I've covered a lot of wars— And this is one of the few where I really can't see what President Putin can get out of this. I just don't see. I don't get it. I don't understand what a win or what a victory looks like for him. Because even if he was able to ouster the government of Volodymyr Zelensky and put in a puppet regime, that regime is not going to be accepted by people here. There are 40 million people here who hate russia with a passion now i mean that is just the reality so yeah it's just hard to understand it's madness
1: the ukrainians that you talk to where are they getting their information from are they watching television are they getting it from social media are they asking you for information where are they getting their news and opinion
2: so uh, well they're not getting it so much from television anymore because literally several hours ago um Mm -hmm. A Russian strike took out the TV tower. It's it's yes. still standing, but they're not broadcasting anymore. They're working to get up a, sort of backup channels. So, but I would say that you know a lot of Ukrainians, particularly the young people, are like very um, technologically savvy, and they're all online. And people here get a lot of their news from Telegram channels. Telegram is the you know the um, it's, it's like WhatsApp. Yep. And so a lot of them get – they have these telegram channels and the different Ukrainian services, like the emergency services, the information ministry, they all have their own telegram channels. And, and that is probably, for most people, the primary way of distributing and, and disseminating information.
1: And so these stirring videos you've seen from Zelensky in particular, um, they're widely distributed out, out in Facebook in the West. Those, as well. Those, those are, are going also... out
2: on Facebook and, and Facebook is a big one too, Yeah
1: you know there's commentary from from where I sit about this is the first social media war obviously social media has been around for for some time mm. does it feel different this time around that that people have more access to information from different sources or is it not really like- because
2: when i think of the arab spring and i think of the syrian civil war which i covered very closely i mean social media was a huge part of that and those videos on youtube by those brave protesters holding their cell phones up in the air as they were met with a hail of bullets. I mean, that's really what sort of kick-started that uprising. So I think that the social media element has has been around for a while. I mean, the disinformation is next-level turbocharged now, right? Because this is obviously some years later, and, and that's a tricky one for all of us, but particularly for ordinary Ukrainians who are just trying to work out what's going on and and trying to stay safe and yeah
1: are, are what's you, what's an average ukrainian sense of how the world is viewing this are they aware of the spotlight uh, do they think that, yes. that, that spotlight is going to remain indefinitely or are they sort of resigned to the idea that at some point this will become old news
2: no i think that they're aware of the spotlight i think that they hugely appreciate the support and the solidarity but I think most of them would argue from their perspective that it's not enough. Um, and the you know, the thing you hear again and again here, it's like, we're not just fighting for our way of life. We're fighting for your way of life. Like this isn't just about Ukraine. This is about ideals and sovereignty and self-determination and democracy and liberalism, uh, so I think if you talk to a lot of Ukrainians, they want to see some kind of a no-fly zone. They want to see. Obviously, we've seen President Zelensky mm-hmm. today making an impassioned appeal for Ukraine to be able to join the European Union. They want to see. They want to see the West step in and um, and help them fight this fight. At, at the moment, it doesn't appear that that's going to happen, right? Um, so I, I, I don't think they're I don't think they have any illusions about that. I think they are pretty clear eyed about that, but um, that's what they would say.
1: I have a nerdy journalism question for you, and then I'll let you mm-hmm. go uh, about standards and practices and how you show yeah. how you how you describe a war to people at, but back yeah. at home. Um, I've seen images of dead Russian soldiers. I saw one on CNN, yeah. followed by uh, one of your correspondents saying, "There's other stuff here I can't show you." I, I keep yeah. hearing references of people saying, "There's things here that are so ghastly, but I don't want to show them to you." I also saw a yeah. report you did where you said uh, someone's holding up a sign and it's very vulgar. I won't translate it. Right. Um, how much time are you guys spending thinking about what you can show and describe and versus we're just going to show you it cause it's real and, and how much yeah. of that has to do with what can go on TV versus maybe in a written reporter on, on the internet?
2: Right. I think that um, for most of us who've been covering war for a, a while that, you know, we're sort of used to understanding that there are certain things you can't show on television and, And that, honestly, I believe you shouldn't show that become gratuitous and kind of, you know, I I think that people can be really traumatized by seeing these kinds of images, especially if they're not fully prepared for them, which is why it's so important that you always do the warning. If there's even something even semi-graphic in your piece that you that you give people a heads up to to brace themselves.
1: And the counter argument would be. You should see this stuff. This is actually what's happening. We don't yes, want to because sanitize Yes, you don't want to sanitize
2: worry. it. And, and I think there's a way of striking that balance. And by the way, I did a report uh, during the Syrian civil war where um, there had been a chemical attack on a town called Khan Sheikhoun. And we had unbelievably horrifying images of children literally gasping their last breaths and dying. And we decided we had to air it and we aired it and we didn't blur it. And it was agonizing to watch. But in that instance, we felt that it was really important to give an unvarnished look at the absolute horror of chemical weapons. Um, So in that context, you know, you have the debate, you have the conversation, you have it with your standards colleagues and, and you make the assessment. But if you're seeing a, you know, a mangled dead body on the ground. I mean, it's one thing if it's blurry and in the background, but like there's no reason to show any to show people that, you know? I mean, even when I see it, I avert my gaze, right? Because the reality is, and this is something you come to realize when you do this job for a long time, like, you do absorb it all, right? And you don't want to have your head in the sand and be like oblivious to the horrors of war. But you also don't need to completely immerse yourself to the point where you are traumatizing people or yourself.
1: Since this is a podcast and it's for adults, can you tell us what that anti-Putin uh, message was? Now that you can, can you translate that for us?
2: It said Putin is a dickhead. Pretty
1: mild for twenty twenty two social media. It's
2: it, it's pretty much mi- well. There's plenty of other yeah. ones going around, which is like Putin Nahui, which means like it's also. Uh, referencing the, the male organ, anatomy, yeah, but it literally means like F-U-C-K Putin.
1: Yeah, I, we got the sense of it. Um, very, <laughs> very grateful that you were able to spend some time here. You were telling me you're going to have a very late night. It's eight o'clock your time and you're going to be staying up to the State of the Union, which is going to put you well into middle of the morning uh, your time. So, so get some rest and be safe. And, and thanks again.
2: Thanks, Peter. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Clarissa. Take care. Thanks again to Clarissa Ward from CNN. In a minute, we're going to hear from Pucks' Julia Yaffe. But first, a word from a sponsor.
0: Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed. Punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Jackie. And the listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: I'm here with Julia Yaffe, longtime Washington correspondent who is now at Puck, where she's a founding member of that fine institution. Uh, welcome, Julia.
3: Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for coming on. I know you're very busy. I appreciate your time. I have a very basic question for you. You are in Washington, D.C. You are covering a war in Ukraine in Europe. You're also trying to understand what's happening in Russia. How are you keeping track of things? What are you relying on for, for your sourcing and news?
3: Well, I'm glued to every, every which screen. So looking at Twitter, looking at Telegram... I also am talking to friends in Moscow, to friends in Kiev. I'm talking to my sources here in Washington, checking in with them um, as often as I can. What they're thinking, what they're saying... um,
1: What's what's your level yeah. of confidence about? It's 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 a it's war is by definition murky and, and hard to uh, understand, um, even if you're in the middle of it. And on the one hand, this this seems like a conflict where we have lots of basic questions about motivations and why things are happening. And we also seem incredibly informed. At least there's a ton of stuff coming across our screens. Do you feel like you have a handle on things, or are you just as clueless as as anyone else who's who's watching something flow across your screen?
3: I think it depends what level you're talking about. So, things like casualty counts, I'm not clear on. I don't know that anybody is. But things like why this is happening, how it's going, what the effects of this are probably going to be, who's winning, who's losing, who's going to win, who's going to lose. That all seems pretty clear. One thing that I can't quite get a handle on from the outside is and I don't know that I would if I were inside the country either. Is what Russians think about this, but if you tune in later to Puck, there will be some answers.
1: That was one of the things I was going to ask you, uh, but let's let's jump there now. What? What? I mean, I, and I and I enjoy your reporting. You frequently reference. You'll say, "I got a, a note or an email or a text from a friend in Saint Petersburg or wherever," and this is what they think. Um, is is that sort of your most important sort of person on the ground sense of of how things are going? No, you're shaking your head now.
3: Oh, sorry. Uh, you know, on, it, it gives me a little bit of atmospheric color, but mm-hmm. from the time I lived in Russia and, and the time I spent going back and forth and, report, you know, doing stories from there until the pandemic, that was, you know, a couple times a year. I've always known that the people who are my friends in Moscow and St. Petersburg are not representative of the, what the Russian population mm-hmm. at large thinks. You know, they're like they're educated urban dwellers, kind of upper middle class, or the in the creative industries, white collar people who speak other languages, who tra- who used to travel the world a lot, uh, who mm-hmm. are connected, uh, you know, consume culture from the U.S. and Europe, and you know, they're people like. The people you and I know from New York and San Francisco. And right.
1: It'd be like determining how the U.S. feels by talking to people in the West Village in Williamsburg.
3: Correct. Exactly. So, but then, you know, how do you determine what people in the countryside think or people in smaller cities? It's hard to do. I don't, uh, polling has never been very good in Russia. It often, you know, I remember one of the first things I learned when I moved to Moscow in 2009 I was talking to a sociologist who was at this very prominent independent polling, public polling place called uh, the Levada Center. And I guess I kept asking similar kinds of questions. And he said, you you understand, right, that we're not measuring public opinion. We're measuring the effectiveness of propaganda. And that was 2009. Those were, as Russians like to call them, vegetarian times. There was still a lot of independent media. There were... uh, people weren't being sent to jail for liking something on Facebook. It was easier to ask people what what they thought was going on. Now, I mean, yesterday, they shut down, the Russian government shut down or blocked transmission of the last independent TV station, which had already been relegated to the internet and was no longer on any cable or satellite packages and the last independent radio station. So... Russians have been living in an increasingly controlled media space and right now it feels like they're living in a, unless they're actively seeking out information from other sources, they're living in an informational blackout about this war.
1: So, with all the caveats about the limited access you have to figure out what an average Russian citizen is thinking and doing these days, what is your sense of what where those people would be turning to for news and information? Are the state controlled TV? Are they on the internet? Um, we can talk about social media, which I know is being throttled. But what's if you're an, what's the average media diet right now?
3: I think it depends on the age group and where mm-hmm. people live. For the last few years, we've seen a trend of. Younger Russians, probably people under forty, basically only getting their news from Telegram, of you know various Telegram channels and YouTube channels. So there was this surge of popularity among these these YouTubers. Most of them, you know, in the, in the favorite format for Russians, I will never understand this is like three hour long interviews. <laughs>
1: if they're Joe Rogan fans.
3: No, but I mean, li- literally, like I, you know. I see one of them, like a, a good friend of mine is one of these kind of well-known YouTubers who switched from actually working for state TV to building her own YouTube channel because she was just sick of the censorship. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, she interviewed this really interesting person. I'm going to watch it. And then I open it like two hours. I'm like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, everything's war and peace over there. So... There's that. Uh, I think older people watch TV, especially in rural areas. You know, there's also social media. But as we've seen in the U.S., social media doesn't mean quality information and it doesn't mean anti-government information.
1: You know, we spent we've spent years now post-2016 talking about Russian disinformation efforts aimed at the West, aimed at disrupting our, our elections in the U.S., etc., it does not seem like that is effective at this very moment. Um, but I you know, I, th- I think we're slowly realizing some of us that oh, there's two disinformation campaigns. One is aimed externally and one is aimed internally. Um, do you have a sense of, of why uh, Putin's disinformation teams have been less successful this time around aimed at the West? Did we catch up to what they were doing? Is it just that it's just much harder to deceive someone about a, a, a land war?
3: I think it's that. I think, A, you know, fool me once. I'm not going to bungle it like George W. Bush did. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think people are savvier consumers. I think uh, social media companies have caught up. At least a little bit, you know. Even on Twitter, you see, you know, things labeled as like this person works for the Russian government, and I think that before people, we didn't have that, and it just seemed like, oh, what a, what an interesting person with a high follower count and a blue check mark. And I, I take it they've been better at shutting down trolls. Uh, sorry, not trolls, bots. But I'm, as you can tell, I'm not the most tech tech savvy person. That's right. I think the other thing is that you know, after twenty, right? So after twenty sixteen, it's uh, harder to fool people, both in Europe, which had, which was also the target of this kind of disinformation campaign with their elections, with Brexit, French presidential election, and here with uh, the election of Trump. But also, I think the Biden administration did a fantastic job in preparing people for this in basically calling out what Putin was going to do before he did it. You know, he's going to do X and then Putin does X. He's going to do Y and then Putin does Y. And it really just ripped the veil off of, you know, it it was no longer mysterious. It was that people no longer had to wonder, is it a false flag thing? Also, like you said, it's harder to hide a land war and Putin wasn't really hiding it. You know, he had almost 200,000 troops on the border for so Mm -hmm. long. This wasn't little green men without without insignia showing up and saying, like, whoa, we're just volunteers. We just got these at the Army surplus store. Now it was like they've been sitting there and Putin has been was threatening to use them and now he's using them. So it's,
1: it's out in the open. We're braced for it. That that said it still is murky and confusing. It's fast moving. We're recording this Wednesday morning, March 2nd. Um, so maybe things will be outdated by the time this this podcast comes up later tonight. But I mean, two weeks ago, if you read sort of mainstream media, there was real skepticism about whether Putin would actually invade or if this was saber rattling and could we really trust the intelligence reports the US was distributing. Uh, A week ago, the narrative was that they were going to occupy Ukraine within a day or so. Now there's the narrative is is they've been stymied by the, the plucky Ukrainians. I don't mean to make light of it, but that's a narrative people like. How much of that is media, maybe misunderstanding from the jump what was happening and how much of it is, look, it's fast moving and it's chaotic and and war doesn't follow a, a linear path. And maybe Vladimir Putin doesn't follow a linear path.
3: Well, I think on the, the intelligence was very consistent and I think it's okay that people were and good that people were skeptical, but now it, you know, as soon as it started, it was like, Oh, the intelligence was right on everything they didn't count on the, I guess they counted out the Ukrainians too soon
1: Mm -hmm.
3: who are, it's not just a media narrative. They are giving the Russians a hell of a time and it's incredible to watch. You know, they're stopping, stopping tanks with it. People stopping tanks with their bare hands, people driving by in cars, throwing a Molotov cocktail at the, you know, treads of a tank. Um, but then you also have the Ukrainian military. And and this was also like if you're um if you're part of these circles that talk about this stuff and report about this stuff, that was also something that was predicted that we all kind of figured would happen, that it wouldn't be two days, that mm-hmm. um you know, the Ukrainian army is, is not the Ukraine today was not the Ukrainian army of twenty fourteen. They've been fighting for eight years. Uh, fighting Russia for eight years, they've they're better equipped by the West now. There, there's better morale, and also like invading the homeland would trigger some something like this. So it hasn't been all that murky. I think it was a question of, you know, and even the intelligence said like we don't know that a hundred until they said it, you know it was a hundred percent they said we don't know with 100% certainty if he'll do this it's more likely than not that he will and the question and the decision is his alone so I, I actually i'm not really i'm not really sure what you mean by murky. like but, um i it, i, I...
1: So I'm not following it day to day like mm-hmm. you are. I'm not a professional. I I, I I have found that just in general, there is a natural and I think relatively healthy skepticism about official sources and especially when it comes to, you know, uh, well, but lots of different things, right? I mean, things that seemed incontrovertible a few years ago and now are all up, sort of up for debate. The U.S. has been military intelligence has been wrong many times in in past history, um, and at least for me, like I, I I certainly assume that most things coming out of, of Russian officials' mouths are are not true or at least uh, misleading. But I don't necessarily trust anything that that, that comes from. A US military source at at face value, right? I'm certainly willing to consider whether they're wrong or whether they have uh, different motivations.
3: But now what we've seen, I mean, this is like an incredible comeback story for US intelligence agencies, Mm -hmm. despite previous fuck ups, they've gotten it right this time at every turn, like everything they said would happen has happened, and it's happening exactly as they said it would happen. Which is really incredible, because the intelligence gathering environment has in Russia has gotten more and more dangerous and hard. So, uh, there must be a crazy mole hunt going on in the Kremlin right now. Um, and
1: so, you you think that's human intelligence? That's not spy satellites. I don't, and, I don't know. Yeah,
3: I think some. I think it's a mix. I wouldn't we'll be have- surprised if there were people in the Russian government who are like, "Holy shit, we're about to do this."
1: It's hard to compare this to other events, whether they're wars or pandemics. Um, I, I was struck by something you said in a recent interview um on TV talking about your concern that 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 Americans were going to be disappointed as the as the war progressed, that this the the underdog story, the David Goliath story was not going to turn out the way they might expect. can you Can you expand on that for me?
3: We're seeing that happen already over the weekend everybody and myself included were delighted to see that the ukrainians had basically halted the advance that they were i mean they were really pummeling the russians both on the ground and in the informational like in the reputational informational space they were totally dominating the narrative and all we saw from the war was like were these as you said plucky ukrainians you know uh gathering Crates and crates of homemade Molotov cocktails and dancing around with javelins and and these poor Russian conscripts, you know it's it's against the G- Geneva Conventions to circulate these videos. But if you see them, they're they didn't know they were going into Ukraine, which is I think very plausible, uh, given that they're fo- foot soldiers. Maybe the officers knew, but these poor you know 18-year-old conscripts maybe didn't. But now you're already seeing it turn, as many of us predicted, because of just the sheer manpower and firepower that Russia has, because they have certain weapons that the Ukrainians don't have, like that kind of air force. And it's, I mean, as we're we're talking on Wednesday morning, Kherson in the south is uh, surrounded. They're running out of food and fuel. There are... Massive civilian casualties and then people are too scared to go out and get the dead bodies. Kiev is also is probably going to be surrounded. My fear and this is not this is not, you know, original thinking to me, but in the Russia watching community and talking to friends who are reporting from Ukraine right now and just talking to experts, the fear is that it's going to turn into Syria and It'll still be a David and Goliath story, but it'll be something like that drags on for months and or maybe even years, and cities are leveled, which is horrible because these are beautiful cities. Cities are leveled. The death toll keeps rising. the The types of weapons that are used are just in, like, the Russians apparently have already used thermobaric bombs, which are just horrific. The US used them in Afghanistan and they're, um, they're awful. It's basically it bomb on a, on exploding, sucks up all the oxygen and ignites the oxygen. So there's nowhere to hide. It explodes your lungs, basically, and your internal organs. It's awful. And, you know, I, I don't think a lot of this is just from knowing Putin. I, he's not going to take the L on this. He will not be humiliated in front of the in front of the whole world. And in some ways, the sanctions will probably make it more likely that he will try to take over Ukraine, even if it means killing every last Ukrainian. Uh, And that's awful, in part, because if you think about Syria, when did the world stop paying attention? Very early on in the conflict. And when did people get sick of refugees from there and get sick of helping them? Very early on in the conflict. And if you think about Syria, the bad guy won in the end.
1: Do you imagine that 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 tuning out phenomenon, right? Just natural. It's the, uh, people don't pay attention to anything for very long. We're in a, still in a pandemic in the U.S., and people got sick of that a couple of years ago. Any reason to think that it plays out in terms of the world's attention? That it plays out differently? in the Ukraine, simply because it's in Europe. And as there's, you know, there's already now a media criticism back and forth about these people look like us, meaning other white people in New York and Washington and, and Europe, and that commands more attention? Or is it, it in the end, it's just a news story about something happening to people that you don't know in another part of the world that you can't find on a map? And that at least in the US that, that we, we tune out fairly soon.
3: Yeah, I think here we have to differentiate between Europe and the U.S. I think for Europe, there has been a lot of racist coverage of this, uh, you know, about how it's people with blue eyes and blonde hair and how they look like you and me.
1: They have Netflix.
3: Yeah, I think that is a massive, massive part of the story about why these refugees are being treated differently than, say, Syrian or Afghan or Eritrean refugees. But it's also that these are their neighbors. For example... Poland and Ukraine have a very similar language, similar culture, especially in the West. So it's partly the racism, but partly like it's the equivalent of or the analog of, let's say, something crazy happens in Canada and a bunch of Canadian refugees stream across the border. Mm-hmm. So I think in Europe, it will continue to be a story because it's there and it's uh, it's on their continent. And as one... Biden administration source told me when I asked why the Europeans reacted, I think American officials didn't expect the Europeans to react so swiftly and severely. And this source said it's hitting them in their World War II muscle. And I personally feel it as somebody from the Soviet Union. This looks like World War II. This is it's happening in the same places as on the Eastern Front. It's incredibly triggering. It's incredibly traumatic to watch because our people have all lived through it. I think for the US, we'll be tuned out in two weeks max. I mean, and and I some of that is geography. I think we're spoiled by our geography. We're spoiled by our comfort and wealth. And we have the option to tune out. You know, we have two friendly neighbors and two oceans for borders. And we've always been very good at sticking our heads in the sand
1: are you thinking about your coverage and at what point your bosses at puck will say, look, we can't do Russia. We can't Mm -hmm. do Ukraine every week. Um, We, we, you're our Washington correspondent get, you know, um, we need some play by play on the elections, et cetera. And how you're going to balance that.
3: I don't even think it's going to be my bosses. It's going to be, you know, what readers want, what they want to read about. Yeah. I'm already thinking about that. Uh, It's, I think that's going to be very hard because the war in Syria, just personally speaking, I'm not, you know, not that my feelings are paramount in this, but just from a personal perspective, the war in Syria was very, you know, hit me really hard, but this is hitting me in a way, I was talking about this with friends who are both from the area and, covered and lived there, lived in Russia and Ukraine for many years. And we're already talking about how it's an, it's so jarring and alienating to talk to people. You know, we're all stateside now. Um, how alienating and jarring it is to talk to Americans who aren't thinking about this 100% of the time. This is all I think about, in part because it's, you know, I'm from... Moscow and my parents are from Moscow, but their grandparents, three quarters of them, were from Ukraine. And these, you know, one of my grandmother's uh, native cities was being shelled the other day. Odessa, where my uh, my grandmother's father is from, is under threat of being taken over. They there was an amphibious landing there the first day of the invasion. I have friends calling me. uh, Last night, a friend from St. Petersburg called me in tears. She has two kids and she's like, please help me get out. I don't want to live in uh, North Korea. And so I'm calling my friends at the State Department of, you know, where can she get a visa? What kind of visa can she get? I have friends who are fleeing for their lives or because they're men and they don't want to fight and they don't want to be called up to fight in Ukraine. I have family friends who are watching their money disappear and are becoming kind of impoverished overnight. And this is a personal story in a way that few other stories have been. And I know it's going to be hard for me to write about the midterms when, you know, if this is still going on, you know, I mean, like I wake up and it's the first thing I think about and then I can't fall, despite how tired I am, when I go to sleep, I can't, fall asleep, because that's all I'm thinking about.
1: Thank you for putting that in context. It's very helpful. Uh, and I know you got to go. I want one last question. You're, you're the, And I think this will be uh, illuminating for, for my listeners uh, about the work you do. The name of your newsletter that you put out periodically, uh, it's excellent. It's called Tomorrow Will Be Worse. Where does that come from? What does that name mean?
3: So what happened was in, I believe it was July 2016, there was... I don't know if people remember this. I think it was in Dallas. A sniper started picking off police officers. And I happened to lo- like, look at Twitter and the discourse was just horrific. And you know, for once on Twitter, it was horrific, right? <laughs> and I just and then at some point, I, I realized I had to go to bed, because I just I had to stop doom scrolling. And I, and I just did just something that came to me and I just said, you know, good night, tomorrow will be worse. And people immediately were like, Oh, that's so Russian. God, you're so dark and Russian. So I pinned that tweet. And for many years, it was my pinned tweet. And Joe Scarborough was like, Oh, that was so you know, so Russian of you. But like, and I was like, but now do you see what? And personally, I find it I want to I want to scream when people say that to me, because nothing sounds more foolish to me when people say that. It's like, Americans are so spoiled. They're spoiled by history. They're spoiled by their wealth. They're spoiled by their borders. Most countries don't have that luxury. And Americans are always, Hannah Nicole Jones talked about this. Many other people have talked about this. And I think maybe only black Americans understand this. This need to see everything, like to find hope in everything, and to find positivity and optimism in everything and to believe that everything's gonna be okay. And it's, it's mind boggling to me. I'm like, things aren't always okay and there isn't hope in everything and there isn't. You know, when I was talking to the producer of the Colbert Report the night before I went on and he was like, well, Stephen's gonna ask if there's any hope in this, like, what is there hope? I'm like, there's a major war starting. What, <laughs> what are you talking about? People, like thousands of people are going to die. What the fuck are you talking about? And to me, it's just so, it's so foolish. And so it's just like a nation of spoiled Pollyannas. And, and when people, and I only respond in that way because people always say, oh, you're so Russian. I'm like, no, I'm not Russian. It's just like this, this shelf, this bookshelf behind me. And then I have more on the side facing me that you can't see. All history books. And most times things don't turn out well in history. And America has been really spoiled, or white America has been very spoiled. Black America certainly hasn't been. And they know that things don't always turn out well. And I don't know. That's my rambling answer. I find it very frustrating.
1: It's, it's a great answer. And I, I am the child of an immigrant and I am usually the cynical one in, in, in most conversations. And it's, it's uh, refreshing uh, to, be, to be on the phone, uh, to be on the Zoom with someone who's, who's, who's darker than I am.
3: I don't think it's, you know, but that's, that's I think that is a, uh, an error of framing. I don't think it's cynical and I don't think it's dark. I think it's real. I think it's a it's a real understanding of what is going on. It's a real understanding of how things play out of human nature. For example, we when we moved to the US and my parents started going to movie theaters and seeing movies, they were they were so puzzled. They were like, "What? American movies are so weird. They're so unrealistic. Everything has a happy ending." You know, it's just um I don't think it's, again, I don't think it's cynical or dark or pessimistic. It's just realistic. It's just seeing the facts on the ground and being logical.
1: I have made that same argument as well. <laughs> um, but I usually just get lumped into cynic or skeptic. Um Julia, Afi, you're excellent. Thank you for your time. Um, I hope to chat with you again under more pleasant circumstances, as naive and American <laughs> and overly optimistic as that may be.
3: Thank you so much for having me. And I hope we meet under better circumstances, too. Thanks, Julia. Thanks.
1: I'm here with Jane Litvinenko, who is a senior research fellow at Harvard's Shorenstein Center. Many of you will recognize Jane's work from BuzzFeed, where she did excellent reporting on disinformation and all manner of scams and bad behavior on the internet. She lives in Boston. She's a native of Kyiv. Welcome, Jane.
4: Hi. Thanks for having me.
1: I've been reading your stuff forever. I, I, I'm I'm remiss in not talking to you until now, so better late than never. Um, you are the person, one of the people I turn to when I want to understand what's going on when it comes to people putting bad and fake stuff on the internet. And mm-hmm. it seems like this is an overwhelming time to do the work you do. So thanks for taking the time. Maybe just start off by describing what you're doing right now at, at Shorenstein Center and how that relates to what's happening in Kiev and Russia.
4: Yeah, well, there's a few different things that we're doing. And really, we're just trying to understand what's happening online in the few different information ecosystems. So we're trying to understand how social media companies are responding to the war and the Russian propaganda that they host. Um, as well, we're trying to understand the type of false information that we see, uh, both deliberately false information um, and information that's just sort of accidentally spread because of the volume and the situation. Um, and Um I personally monitor uh, the Ukrainian information space very closely. So I'm in uh, so many telegram channels. I've lost count. I consistently watch uh, Ukrainian television as well so that I can understand the type of information environment they're dealing with over there.
1: And to be clear, this is not an abstract uh, interest of yours. You have family uh, who's still living there and you're in touch with them as, as often as you can be. Um, and you wrote about this in a very touching uh, essay that's in The Atlantic. I, I suggest that everyone go check that out where you talk about sort of being swamped by all this stuff coming online and finding some solace and watching a simple live stream. Let's, let's talk about what, what you're seeing online now. And I'm glad you differentiate between sort of active propaganda and stuff that is wrong. And I, and I think maybe there's a third category of, in the middle where people are putting out stuff that's wrong, but they're not doing it necessarily on behalf of, of Russians or any nation mm-hmm. state. They're doing it for profit or maybe just for, for kicks. Um, sure. those are the folks putting up, you know, fake live streams, I assume on, on, uh, on TikTok. How can you distinguish what is Russian propaganda versus something that someone posted and just happens to be wrong, or it's something they're unwittingly spreading and they don't mean anything malicious by it?
4: To think through that question, I think it's helpful to take a step back and to understand the role that Russian propaganda and disinformation has played in this war so far. And I apologize for going back this far, but really it's important to look at 2014 because 2014 is the year that Ukraine's revolution of dignity took place. During that revolution of dignity, really protesters, some of whom gave their lives, fought for independence from Russia. Um, and as a result, Russia used disinformation to uh, as one of the weapons uh, as they were annexing Crimea, Um, as they were occupying uh, the eastern part of Ukraine, and also to obfuscate their responsibility for the downing of flight MH17. And the narratives that they really crystallized during that time are the same narratives that we see today. So um, their narratives like Ukraine is a nationalist Nazi state, uh, which of course is not true, there are narratives like uh, Ukraine is perpetuating chemical attacks in certain parts of the country. Again, no evidence for that at all. And there are narratives that are really seeking to undermine Ukrainian democracy and Ukrainian freedom. And so that is a big genre of Russian disinformation that both we've seen up until now and we continue to see. But we also see some whataboutism, um, right? Uh, which is, well, why is the West intervening in Ukraine, but did not intervene in other wars and crises? And so that's really an attempt to divert attention away from Ukraine um, or spread the attention and the anger around to other issues as well. It's really tricky to look at one piece of online content, a post, an image, a video, and say, this is 100% Russian propaganda, right? Um, As a professional, for me, that kind of attribution is difficult. Uh, to the average user, that attribution is going to be near impossible. But being aware of the disinformation narratives that Russia is putting out to start this war, as well as the propaganda outlets that exist already, you know, RT, Sputnik, of course, is a really good start is a really good start. So I want to
1: ask you about RT and Sputnik in a second but but when we're talking about disinformation online and the messaging and the narratives the Russians are putting out presumably this is both happening within Russia uh, for for Russian citizens, and then obviously outside of, of the country. What's your sense of sort of where those efforts are concentrated? Are they spending more time trying to to spread disinformation and confusion in Ukraine, outside of Ukraine, in the West, in Europe, in, in America? Or is this, is this mostly aimed at Russian citizens? I realize it's going to be some degree of all of the above, but where's the real mm. emphasis seem to be?
4: Yeah, I mean, we can't really quantify the emphasis of the conversation, mm-hmm. because They're all really uh, different places on the internet, right? We know, for example, that Russia is deeply invested in obfuscating how Russians see this war. As a matter of fact, they don't call it a war. They call it a special operation. And today was the first time that Russia acknowledged that troops even died during this special operation. So up until today, there was no acknowledgement of that at all. In Ukraine, Those disinformation operations are frequently coupled with cyber attacks as well, and it's really an all-out assault. There's a few different examples that we see. I remember early on in this week, sorry, time has no meaning anymore, (laughs) but right as they started the blitzkriegs, for example, they put out this disinformation campaign telling people that the air raid sirens are actually just being tested. There's no need to go into... Into don't, don't run. Shelters. That's nothing to fear here. Yeah, right. Exactly, um, and that's one very small example in von in a very big series of examples. There are also some reports of Russian soldiers just changing uniforms on the ground, right? Which of course is going to be translated to some confusion online. And so, really, within Ukraine, the point is to demoralize the Ukrainian population. Add confusion to the specific attacks that, uh, that are being carried out and increase civilian casualties. The third one, of course, um, is disinformation aimed at the West. And I think this is the one that seems, I think this is the one that seems the least successful. And that's because With the amount of information that we have, with the amount of of reports that we have from journalists on the ground risking their lives, but also Ukrainians, you know, trying to tell their story or the stories of their families, it's just not working on the scale that they probably wish it did.
1: It's very hard to confuse people about a land war in Europe. It's hard to confuse people with images of tanks. You generally sort of understand what they are. That said, I I was going into this thinking, oh, we're going to have... Uh, 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 some sort of replay of 2016 or 2020, where things that seem objectively true to a reasonable person somehow get spread out, get, get diffused on social media, and lots of people have are, are misled. Um, mm-hmm. Any sense of sort of how much the the West in particular has sort of figured out Russia's playbook when it comes to this stuff? Um, and have figured out how to respond, or maybe just the Russians are using a different playbook because it's a different scenario. I mean, a lot of the disinformation in 2016 wasn't even actively, there was definitely some, some stuff done on behalf of Donald Trump, but a lot of it was just, we're just going to confuse people and cause chaos in sort of small scale ways and just sort of make everyone distrustful in sort of a blanket way. What's your sense of, of how, if anything, things have changed?
4: I think it's really difficult to stage a disinformation campaign when you're bombing innocent people. And when images of those innocent people being bombed are everywhere anybody turns. It's just really a case of where truth has so much power and Ukrainian voices are so clear about what's happening that the disinformation is secondary. And of course, you know, there's always going to be some fringe elements who don't fully trust what is being reported. But I think it's pretty clear worldwide that this is a war without a cause. And I think that that clarity is what is not just playing out online, uh, but also offline, right, with thousands of people rallying around Ukrainians Mm -hmm. and with politicians having an extremely clear sense of what they must do and what they must do urgently. And so I think disinformation is of course part of it, uh, but that the clarity of that narrative is incredibly powerful.
1: You mentioned RT and Sputnik. These are Russian-owned propaganda arms aimed outside of of, of Russia. Uh, up until now, have been widely carried on places like YouTube and Direct TV that stuff is being choked off by social media companies by a lot of the traditional distributors directv said they're not going to carry this anymore what what is the Mm -hmm. relative importance or maybe not importance of 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 those channels in the west i mean i i suppose it's possible to watch those things and not realize you're watching russian tv but it's Mm -hmm. pretty clear about what it is is it meaningful that those companies have, have stopped distribution at least temporarily of those channels
4: It's meaningful, uh, but I would say it's pretty scattershot. RT does have significant audiences worldwide, has significant audience in the US. It has a significant audience in Germany. Uh, its Spanish language channel also has a significant audience. But, um, in terms of enforcement of these very obvious state sponsored actions, we don't see, um, we don't see that being applied worldwide, right? Uh, We see that being applied in Europe, but not in North America, as one example, right? And so there's inconsistencies in how social media companies are approaching the takedown of obvious self-declared Russian propaganda, right? And many Russian propagandists remain online. Many key figures who spread Russian propaganda or who are in charge of Russian propaganda have kept their accounts on social media. They have not been deplatformed and so you asked earlier you know what has the west learned and i look at the response i look at um, the list of uh, moderation decisions that our team here has put together and to me it seems inconsistent and very reactionary which is exactly how we've seen social media companies react to disinformation up until now as well
1: yeah, I guess I I wanted to make sure that I wasn't be too cynical because it seems like on the one hand the steps they're taking they're saying we're 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 not going to allow you know a uh, state state run propaganda to to exist we we have we've been up we've been okay with it up until now is meaningful because it's the first time they've ever taken that step. On the other hand, it seems like it's in many ways the least they can do because they're taking down the stuff that is literally labeled. This is Russian propaganda. Like you said, they're they're leaving people who people like you know are propagandists. And presumably there's lots of other stuff that is just not identified as propaganda and disinformation, but comes from that same source. Do you also assume that they're tackling that stuff behind the scenes and, and aren't just simply aren't announcing it for various reasons? Or do you think maybe they're just letting it go?
4: Yeah, I mean, we definitely see a lot of removals from social media companies, but not a lot of transparency about those removals, uh, which is what we need. And we need that particularly because social media right now is the place where Ukrainians are documenting war crimes, um, and so we need to understand how that documentation is working about behind the scenes how this sort of data is being preserved behind the scenes. And we need to, we need to understand this for the historical record. Right. Um, and so the transparent, although it is happening, the transparency is not quite there.
1: This is not whataboutism, I promise, but this is a information war, a social information war. In some ways, everyone's been praising the Ukrainians, and a lot of it is clearly genuine stuff. When you see Zelensky standing up there and speaking, it's just moving. You have to be just in a non-human to not realize that. But are you seeing instances where you're pretty sure that that a Ukrainian government or people sympathetic to them are putting up stuff that you know purports to be a Russian soldier but isn't, or something else that's aimed at at, at confusing and demoralizing the Russians?
4: Yeah, there's definitely uh, a social media campaign going on from Ukraine's side as well. And uh, particularly, you know, we've, we've seen the videos of Russian soldiers calling their moms. Uh, many of those videos have been confirmed by journalists finding parents of those soldiers. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, it's pretty clear what the aim of that is. And, uh, of course, we see many reports of Russian soldiers, you know, putting down their arms or uh, draining their tanks of fuel or stories like that. And, of course, it's tricky to confirm or verify them in the moment as they happen, although, of course, open source investigators are doing pretty solid work here. But I worry that... The hope that those stories instill doesn't always reflect the despair that is happening on the ground. And so I worry about people having false hope, right, that Russian soldiers are quitting the army en masse and they will all lay down their guns and this will all be over, which is not the reality. Um, The reality is that I'm getting air raid alerts right now on my Telegram channels telling me about the latest Russian bombings.
1: Boy, it's hard to ask another question after that, but I'm going to. You mentioned Telegram. Um, I've talked to you're the third guest I've talked to for for this episode, Uh, um, and all of them have mentioned the importance of Telegram, both in the Ukraine and and sorry, both in Ukraine. You've already corrected me before. My apologies. And Russia. In the U.S., Telegram doesn't have. I think I think a lot of mainstream social media users aren't using it. I think people may have heard of people you, flocking to it after January 6th. Um, mm-hmm. I know among the crypto set, it's popular. Why is Telegram important? Well, maybe just describe what Telegram is and why it's an important media platform of choice in both Russia and Ukraine.
4: Yeah, so uh, Telegram, the easiest way to think about it is like Twitter, like Eastern European Twitter, um, though, of course, it's not only used in Eastern Europe. Um, but there's a few different functions that it has, which is it allows for massive semi-public group chats where you can invite and discuss logistics. I don't want to get too specific, but for example, I as a researcher can monitor a few chats from on the ground from different cities where people just exchange information, right? And that is kind of like a Facebook group, kind of like a neighborhood uh, information exchange, Um, There's also a one-sided communication called channels, and that's where officials uh, have public channels, news outlets have public channels, uh, ministries have public channels, and just like Twitter, it works to get information to the public fast. The more specialized channels are something that's particularly interesting to me because Essentially, once the nightly blitzkrieg begins, uh, which it did a few hours ago, you start getting a flood of images from different angles of attacks. And so you're very quickly able to piece together what is happening in one neighborhood or another neighborhood.
1: And what's your sense of why that platform is the platform of, of choice for for many social media users, again, in Ukraine and in Russia?
4: Well, it's, uh, you know, it's a bit like asking why is everybody using Twitter? Um, it's just, it's a place where the information is. It's a much more fragmented social media environment now, um, than we saw even a decade ago. Um, but Telegram is just something that, uh, many Eastern Europeans have taken up. It stems from Russia. One of the creators, uh, was the creator of VK, uh, who moved away. From Russia, I believe he's in Dubai now, to uh, essentially escape Russian censorship, and so that's that's part of why it has such big uptake.
1: That makes sense, and 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 I I think it's probably too far in the weeds, but just as an aside, there's I think for a lot of folks, believe that Telegram was somehow encrypted, or it's easier to do uh, private messaging there, and I think most knowledgeable tech folks say there really isn't encryption there and, and your messages are not any safer there than anywhere else for the most part. Is that is that a fair assessment?
4: Yeah. So there is there is a function on Telegram where chats are encrypted, but largely the public channels, of course, are unencrypted. It would be like encrypting a Twitter feed, right? It doesn't Mm-hmm. It doesn't do anything because all the, the the information is public. There is an encryption option on Telegram, but it is nowhere near as strong as signal, right? Which is sort of the gold standard for encrypted communication.
1: I'm assuming this information uh, atmosphere is going to get more chaotic um, as as Internet access and TV access gets more limited in Ukraine, at least in the near term. Any advice just for a regular person who's trying to keep abreast of this, uh, doesn't speak the languages, is trying to augment what they're reading in the New York Times or watching on CNN, but is afraid of sort of wading into unmoderated torrents of content coming their way, how to, how to, how to best understand what's happening on the ground?
4: Yeah, I mean, the best way to understand what's happening on the ground, and I know this is a very basic advice, but it's to follow the reporters who are on the ground. There are many reporters who are risking their lives right now to tell the story of this war, and so turning to them, I think, is quite important. There's also local publications. The Kiev uh, Independent is one that has been an invaluable source of information. This
1: is the one that just sprung up. It just sprung up basically overnight. Correct?
4: They're very new. Yeah, they're they're a few months old. Um, the entire team left their previous post to start the of Independent, essentially, after a controversy. There's also the Conflict Intelligence Team, Bellingcat, the New York Times Visual Investigations Team, and the Washington Post Investigations Team, all of whom are essentially um, spending all of their time doing online investigations to piece together the different battles, the different weapons, the different images that are coming in. It's going to be very hard for the average person to look at a 10, 15, 20 second TikTok video and say, yep, this is correct. And that's why the biggest advice is to follow people who are on the ground, follow people who are in Ukraine um, and follow the legitimate journalists, because this is a war, right? And this is a war, not just of bombs, but also of information. Um, And we need to be braced for
1: that. Jane Litvinenko, I thank you for your time. I'm very appreciative of it. And I wish you good luck. Thank you. Thanks again to Jane Litvinenko. Thanks again to Julia Yaffe. Thanks again to Clarissa Ward for coming on this podcast. This is a bunch to produce and edit. um, So I'm particularly thankful for Travis and Jelani for all their help this week. Thankful to our sponsors as always. And I'm thankful to you guys as always as well. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week.
4: Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Do you want a career that meets you where you are and takes you where you want to go? Whatever your individual ambitions, motivations, and skills may be, discover your potential at Deloitte, right along with purpose-driven teams and a difference-making culture. Be seen for who you are and celebrated for what you bring. Discover your impact at Deloitte. Learn more at deloitte.com us slash